Something we've talked about in a number of Glow Journal podcast episodes, including the one you're about to listen to, are subscription beauty boxes. Australia's number one subscription beauty box is Bella Box. And just like Glow Journal, Bella Box has just had a makeover. After nine years and two million boxes, Bella Box is saying goodbye to polka dots and hello to pastel. For just $19.95 Australian dollars a month, Bella Box will deliver you the very best in beauty, hand-picked and delivered to your door. It's self-love delivered and the best way to try new beauty products without having to leave your home. To unwrap the best in beauty, visit www.bellabox.com.au. Welcome to the Glow Journal Podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder of Jouer Cosmetics, Christina Zilber. Christina Zilber has had an affinity for makeup for as long as she can remember. One of her earliest memories was playing with the makeup of her mother, a model, a career path Christina herself followed upon graduating from college. Christina hated modelling and told me that it was in the makeup chair that she felt she had found her people. Watching and learning from makeup artists was her salvation. And it was there, on set and in the makeup chair, that the idea for Jouer was born. A makeup artist gifted Christina with a refillable palette, inadvertently answering Christina's prayers for a palette filled only with colours and products that she would actually use all of. When she discovered that said palette did not fit in her evening bag, Christina began to develop an interchangeable palette system, one that was completely portable and customisable. The first incarnation of Jouer was born in 2004, and what began as an interlocking makeup palette system relaunched as a fully-fledged cosmetics company in 2008, the Jouer that we now know and love. Beyond her work at Jouer, Christina also sits on the board of UNICEF, a role that has truly shaped her perception of what beauty truly is. She tells me that we can't see beauty as something that's just superficial. Beauty is as beauty does, and it's what you do in your life that makes you beautiful. I think it's very important for me to note that we did record this back in February when Christina was visiting Australia from the US, so the current state of the world is not touched on in this particular interview. Uh, Christina does, however, talk about the stock market crash of 2008 and how New York City became a ghost town. And this is, of course, completely different to what we're now living through. But this did feel to me like a message of hope that we are in this together and that we will all come out on the other side. Another thing we talked about is the transformative power beauty can have on one's mood. Now, I imagine the notion that beauty has such transformative powers probably feels pretty blasé to a lot of people right now, but I'm sure that the vast majority of people who do listen to this podcast do so because they like how beauty makes them feel. And that's certainly why I love beauty. So, I promise you that I'm going to continue trying my very best to keep producing content that makes you feel good and inspired for as long as I possibly can. 
In this conversation, Christina shares how a product that didn't sell ended up becoming a breakthrough for her brand, how she's overcoming self-doubt and how to stay true to your brand's DNA while continuing to evolve. Your mother was a model, so I imagine you grew up around beauty. But do you remember what your very first encounter with beauty was? I really do. I feel like my first memories of beauty were at my mother's vanity. And she had this little marble tabletop. And it always just had these gorgeous, you know, lotions and potions and um, beautiful bottles of makeup. And I was enamored with it. I loved it. I loved watching her get ready. And then I loved playing like she'd go out for the night and then I would sit there and play with it all. (laughs) You've described yourself as a makeup hoarder and it's clear that you've had an affinity for beauty from a very young age. What is it about makeup that you love so much? Well, makeup is magic. Mm -hmm. It really (laughs) is. I have, I just 100% believe in the transformative power of makeup. Um, If you've ever like had a cold and been sick for like five days and you haven't been able to put makeup on and then you just put that on like the day you put your makeup on it's magical you just feel so pulled together and so good right Mm, I sincerely believe that makeup is the cure for a a common cold as well you can cut it short if you just get doled up if you know forget ginseng go for makeup (laughs) (laughs) and go to the pharmacy and just buy bronzer instead of (laughs) exactly easy so you were a model as well. You've obviously had an affinity for beauty from a young age. Talk to me about the in-between years. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I really thought... I loved acting, so I really Mm -hmm. thought I was going to go into acting. And when I was in high school, I was in um, all the school plays. I was the lead in the plays. Like, that was my life. I was, like, kind of a theater geek. But interesting, as I think back on it in those in-between years, my godmother used to buy the gift with purchase massive... Estee Lauder like makeup set yeah. at the holidays Classic. and that was always my Christmas gift mm. so and I loved it it would have like 85 eyeshadows and like all these different things and so I just think I always had that love for makeup in me mm-hmm. and even though I was doing other things and thinking I never thought I was going to be in the beauty business like that didn't even enter my mind but I just always loved beauty How did you move from acting to modeling? It was actually the opposite. I mean, it was the opposite professionally because Mm -hmm. I, um, I, I acted in high school and then I went to college and I didn't act at all just in like fun little, you know, things. But, uh, it was after I graduated from college, I went to Paris actually Mm. as part of an, yeah, semester abroad program. Amazing. And, oh, it was amazing. And I was asked continuously when I was in Paris, um, do you model? Do you model? Because mm-hmm. that's, I guess, the capital of modeling. Yeah. And I was like source, you know, sourcing and trying to find models and stuff. And it, it kind of like planted a seed in my head. And I thought, wow, maybe I could do that as a way to get into professional acting. And that mm-hmm. was my way to get an agent. It was sort of like my 
my way in. Like I never really was interested in modeling, but I was like, I think I could get a, an agent that way. And then I could maybe do commercials and, mm-hmm. you know. That's absolutely the way to do it. Even yeah. now, I think that would be the way to do it. Yeah. You mentioned that what you loved about makeup as a child was that it had these transformative powers. Do you think that idea of transforming is perhaps what led you to acting and modeling, being a creative? Oh, I like that. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'll wrap it up here. Um, possibly. I mean, I just love, I, I, I love literature. I love different characters and I loved acting. I loved like putting the, the coat on, you know, mm. putting that costume on and becoming somebody else. So, um, but I do feel like I, I think it comes from self doubt and feeling mm-hmm. not like I'm not the perfect model. I am not the, you know, I have so many issues on this little piece of face right here that I'm constantly in the search for like, what's going to get rid of my dark circles or how to contour or whatever mm. it is. Like I'm always trying to transform a little bit of myself into something better, you know? And yeah. I think that's what makeup does for me. It's mm-hmm. feel alive and whatever, all of that. And look alive. And look alive, yes. (laughs) The important one. I would love to hear more about your time as a model because I understand that part of your career did kind of lead you to where you are now. When you were on set, were there any tips and tricks that you learnt from makeup artists that you are still using today? Uh, At 100%. I mean, 100%. I think that that was – I hated modeling. I really hated modeling. Okay. I just, <laughs> I just felt that that was that's that's just not a career for anybody who's got a creative mind at all. Yeah. Because you are just a piece of flesh, and they don't really care what you think. They don't care what they don't. You know, you're just there to put your face and body in front of a camera, and you know, serve their purposes. And um, so that to me was just a little bit empty. But okay, I would set, I would go to the makeup set or the makeup chair whatever it was and that is where I I met my people like the makeup artists were my people I was fascinated with everything they were doing and um there was one makeup artist in particular who I learned almost everything about my face and and sort of you know how to how to trick how to use makeup to sort of Mm. trick certain effects and stuff and I still use it I mean I have really like deep set close set eyes so you know putting a lighter color on the inside and uh, my crease I should never highlight I mean I should never you know contour on my crease directly that's going to make my eyes deeper set so Mm -hmm. it was really learning um that you know almost theatrical way in the olden days of how they would like fix women's features Mm. it was sort of like that and I learned so many tricks that I to this day I still use those kind of tricks with my Mm. my own makeup that is so the key to being a good makeup artist as well is understanding the face you're working with I feel like so many makeup artists don't I completely agree with that you'll see a photo of a model looking amazing And then that makeup isn't necessarily going to work on me. You have to tweak it. Which, I mean, I, and, you know, I was sort of raised in the era of makeup artist brands. Mm-hmm. And that rubbed me a little bit the wrong way because makeup artists in general work on models. And models yeah. are so easy. You can slap mud on their face and they look amazing. Mm-hmm. But like work with somebody with me, I've got two different size eyes. I've got like my nose is a little bit larger. Like I am, you know what, I, I'm working with what I've got. It's like a, a real makeup artist actually knows how to correct and conceal and lift and, mm. and kind of transform, you know, and that's what I really loved. I loved Kevin O'Quan was the master. Absolutely. You know, he really was. I have all of his books. I read mm. I literally like 
took notes. I have like post-it notes and like I studied that. Like I love that and color theory. Like Mm. I honestly feel that most makeup artists don't understand color theory. They don't know it. So, you know, they're working with a trend. They are working with a model. But is that really what is going to help you, Mm. you know, look and feel your best? God, that's some good points in there. So those are, I guess, the tips that you learnt from being in the makeup chair. Were there any, I guess in a broader sense, anything that you learnt from being a model that you find is helpful as a business owner? Ooh, as a business owner. I mean, I think there's a lot on, as as far as sort of being the face of the brand, Mm -hmm. there's certainly a lot about being comfortable in front of the camera. I do a lot of um, my own sort of promoting, yes. you know, You're and I natural think, on IGTV. <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you. But, um, so I, I definitely think some of that played in. And as far as business, I mean, I didn't make enough money as a model. I was no supermodel. So I have no idea. Like I, I didn't learn business per se from modeling at all. Mm-hmm. No, but I think there were a lot of skills that I learned along the way that yeah. serve now discipline for one yeah I read that it was while you were model on set you were gifted a Japanese palette yeah and that's kind of where it all started can you talk me through it yeah so I had been working on a film and um the makeup artist used like four lipsticks Mm -hmm. on me and you know, me asking a thousand questions. What color is that? Why do you use that? What is that? You know, oh, like that's I was, me when I'm getting my makeup done. Right? I'm the worst. What <laughs> exactly. could take 30 minutes takes two and a half hours because I'm like, oh, quick one. Can I just... Uh... Exactly. And I'm... I literally... I mean, even to this day, like people... I... I love makeup. So if somebody like pulls out their makeup bag, you better believe I'm looking inside of your Mm -hmm. bag and I'm going to be literally photographing every single thing. Like I'm just obsessed with it. I love it. Um, Anyway, so yeah, she gave me this little palette and had had, like Japanese pushed in the the lipsticks that she used. And I just thought that was a miracle. Mm -hmm. And I loved it so much. And then I thought, well, I want to carry this. I want to carry my makeup around with me in this little palette. And palettes were just kind of coming out, but they were always like colors that you wouldn't choose for yourself. There's one that you oh. use every day and the rest is like blue, green, yeah. purple. Like I always felt like it was the stuff that didn't sell that they yep. just shoved in the palette. And you're like, I don't want that one. I want the nudes and the whatever. So I was I would go out and buy these Japanese palettes and then I would get a concealer because no palette ever comes with a concealer Mm -hmm. and I'm concealer obsessed like a miracle worker everyone needs a great (laughs) concealer so I would shove in there a little concealer I would put cream blush I would put um anything cream based I would put in there and I would create my own palettes and then I ended up having like hundreds of these little palettes laying around Mm -hmm. because the problem with those palettes was that once you put the product in and let's say you were going out for you know an evening and you have a small clutch you're not going to put that whole thing yeah. in so the idea dawned on me like why can't you why why isn't there something where you could build your own palette but literally only take one product if you wanted it so mm-hmm. there was this idea of this connectable palette that you could build as large or as small as you wanted and that was like the idea of Jouer that was born out of that Japanese palette and I lived with that for a few years like honestly I would just be like guys isn't it a fun idea to be doing this (laughs) and nobody really knew what I was talking about but that's that that was sort of the birth of it yeah I did want to ask about that sort of just sitting on the idea why was that well, I wasn't in the business and I didn't know anything about the business. I didn't even think that that business could be a possibility. And But I just thought it was a really cool idea. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, I just, I, I kept talking to people. I don't know why it is. I think that if you have any idea, you should talk a lot about it because I think, mm-hmm. A, I think that manifests it in some way. Yes. But I also think that you never, like it's a network, it's a way of networking. You're just like, isn't yeah. this a, a fun idea? And you never know who is going to land in your lap. And who landed in my lap was this woman who had just left uh, Lorac mm-hmm. and she had been in product development at Lorac and she left and she was going out on her own as a consultant and um, I happened to meet her randomly and told her my idea and she said, you know, I could actually really help you because I know this business and I think this is a really unique idea. And she said, you know, most people want to start a line of lipsticks. Yeah. Like, what? What's so different about that? You know, mm-hmm. like what your idea actually has something different and unique about it. So, you know, she was like, I'd love to help you with that. God, the power of networking. Yeah, 100%. So you launched the first incarnation of Jouet in 2004. Yeah, how did you get it off the ground? You've obviously met the right person, but where to from there? I understand well, engineers were a part of the yes. process. Yes. So she knew some engineers that had just um, graduated from FITM in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and they had won an award for a CD, compact disc, like new design or something, and they okay. wanted to get into cosmetics. Um, we originally went to a really large manufacturer. They're called HCT. They are like the leaders who I now work with, but at the mm-hmm. time, no, I don't. I didn't work with them. And they were like, "Yeah, we could do it for you. It'll cost you a hundred thousand dollars, you know, to build this." Mm, tool. Which is what every new business yeah. owner wants to hear. <laughs> Great. But, so yeah, that that was a that was a bust. But these guys coming out of FITM, they were like, "We want to. We this is something we think is original and fun, mm. and we'll design it." And Put and and make an SLA, which is like a um, a comp of it, and it's like kind of a of I don't know how to describe it. It's like a plastic version of it, so no yeah. tool is actually built. So it's only like you know two thousand dollars as opposed to a hundred thousand dollars. And then we flew up to to San Francisco to meet with Sephora at the time, mm-hmm. and they thought it was a really cool idea. And so that was sort of like that gave me the legs to go. Okay, I think this has legs and we can do it let's let's go for it and that you did yeah I've spoken a bit on this podcast about when you create a brand out of necessity which yeah. is what you did because it didn't exist there are pros and cons the advantages are obviously that you don't have any competitors yeah. but the disadvantages is that you're starting a whole new category so you have to educate buyers you have to educate the yeah. consumer what did you find to be the biggest challenge well, when I look back then, the biggest challenge was communicating with literally everybody. You had to go through a PR company to mm-hmm. speak to beauty editors. And mm. if you did, you know, in order to, to hit an audience, in order to speak to an audience, you had to go through a beauty editor. You had to get in a magazine. And the magazines were bought and paid for by the advertisers. Yeah. So... As an indie brand, and believe me, now indie brand is a cool buzzword, but back yeah. then it was not at all. No. I had no street cred <laughs> at all. Nobody cared about me. And I mean, honestly, it was super challenging. Um, one of the biggest kind of breakthroughs in that way was Birchbox. I, do you guys know yeah, what Birchbox yeah. is? Yeah. And they called me, Katya, the founder, cold called one day and said, we're starting this box or they maybe had done one month. We're starting this box and we're looking for samples. And I had made of my, my tinted moisturizer, I had made into little travel minis mm-hmm. and they didn't sell. No, I was selling them in little boxes of four. I thought, oh, it's genius. You can buy the box of four and then you can throw them in your gym bag and whatever. Nobody caught on to that idea. So I had, I was sitting on all these little kind of deluxe sample sizes and I'm like, sure, I'll give you some. And 
they were able to communicate. They had a way of communicating with their customer base, mm. which at that time was maybe only 2,000 people. I mean, it exploded from Yeah, it's cr- I should actually mention Birchbox is a beauty subscription box. I know I'm yes. like, yeah, I know what it is, but it's just <laughs> dawned on me. It's not just me that listens to this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was – they, you know, they, they were – a conduit for Jouet to be seen and heard in a way that we hadn't been able to before. The beauty editors, I would be, you know, I would go for desk side meetings with these beauty editors that I would sit down with them and they were like, oh my God, my whole desk is Jouet. I love Jouet so much. It's so great. And I would sit there like, well, why am I not in the magazine? Like, how hard is it to get in? Because they've committed, you know, the lauder companies and everybody paid for Mm. full page ads and that guarantees them five placements a month with their, you know, so I just, I couldn't squeeze in anywhere. It was just so hard to communicate. So that's the biggest thing. The biggest challenge really was communicating to the customer Mm -hmm. and that's so different now. So what began as an interlocking makeup palette system in 2004 became a fully fledged cosmetics company in 2008. What happened during those four years? So the, well, we were selling, in Sephora stores um, for, uh, I would say, two of those years. And then I realized that it is too challenging to launch a brand at Sephora, um, educating the customer, educating the cast, updating gondolas, all of those mm. displays, you know, all of those things was too challenging. It's a lot at once. For a small brand. Yeah. So I pulled out. I mm-hmm. was like, this is not going to happen. And I also felt that I was limited in the packaging that I needed to expand in order. I mean, even everything from, you know, getting in magazines, once you, once they've photographed one item and it looks a certain way, they're not going to photograph it again. Mm -hmm. They want newness. They want new products on their pages. So that was also really challenging was how can I, if if I'm, if everything's in this one palette and I'm just changing colors inside of it, how can you evolve it? How can you evolve it? So I had to branch out. I had to like uh, create other products, but I knew that I had a market and I went to Henry Bendel's, which is a Mm -hmm. beautiful, it was a beautiful store in New York. It's since closed sadly, but um, they were like, we love you. We love your idea. We'll launch you. So we re- kind of rejiggered the brand and mm-hmm. launched at Henry Bendel's in Amazing. New York. Yeah. So you obviously had a team because you'd already established this brand, but yeah. to then start to create formulas, how did you find a chemist, a manufacturer? Well, th- luckily um, I had made some connections with labs mm-hmm. in the process and I hired a product developer um, probably around 2006. She had come from Smashbox and shout out to Sarah. <laughs> and um, she was fantastic. Like, she was just a go-getter. And what's so funny is that she'll tell me now, because she came from Smashbox, and she said, you know, with Smashbox, she could call a lab, and the red carpet was laid out. But she's like, she thought it was going to be exactly the same. Like, oh, I'm with Jouet now. And she didn't realize that we would be the last on the production line. Ugh. And we were, you know, it's like when you're a small indie brand, you get no favors at yeah. all. So she, she got a quick lesson, like, oh, it's not the same deal. But um, she was fantastic. And, you know, we ended up going to the trade shows, um, mm-hmm. Cosmoprof and and the likes just, you know, to meet labs and, and see innovation and learn about how all that works. And, mm-hmm. you know, so that's what I was doing. You mentioned a bit earlier how when you were modeling, it was kind of the era of makeup artist yeah. brands. You've said yourself that you're not a makeup artist. Yeah. Did that pre- present, sorry, any issues while you were trying to come up with the formulas and develop the range? 
Um, I don't think it was an issue coming up with the formulas because I I dove into formula. Like mm-hmm. I didn't even know when I started this brand how much I was going to love formula. Now it's the formula that drives everything. Like I'm yes, obsessed. Yes, it is. <laughs> right? I'm obsessed with formula. But where it did, it was challenging. Once again, I go back to the New York beauty editors. Uh, I was told by, I had a PR company and I was told that if I didn't have a makeup artist attached to my line, they wouldn't pay attention. You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. I mean, it would be a strange I joke. I left that PR company in two seconds. Yeah. I was like, nope. Nah. You, if you don't get it, you don't get it. Like, mm-hmm. no, that's just not the way it was. And I ended up going with a fantastic company and they got it. They understood me. And, you know, I just think it, it just didn't exist back then. Yeah. You know, it didn't exist. Do you remember what you developed first? Um, well, yeah, because the, the first was cheek tints. Yeah. Yeah. It was the very first products were cheek tints Mm -hmm. and they were beautiful and fantastic and kind of iconic. And they were, um, you know, they were lip and cheek. You can use the multi-use. Yeah. How does the product development process, sorry, work now? Are you constantly thinking in advance or are you kind of working off what the consumers are asking for? A little bit of both. I I pay attention to what the consumers are asking for. In fact, one of the early kind of, we don't sell these products anymore. Um, We're reformulating, but I had a luminizing moisture tint Mm -hmm. that was really a hero product. It won all kinds of awards and it was a tinted moisturizer with a little bit of like luminizing. Mm -hmm. And we, people kept asking, uh, Oh, can you make a matte one? Can you make a matte one? Can you make a matte one? And then we ended up making a matte moisture tint and that, then that one won awards. It was really cool. So that was really customer feedback that drove that. But now it's, um, it starts really with like a formula idea. Like I want, let's say the concealer, I want a concealer that has really high coverage, but has skincare ingredients. I want it to be liquid. Um, you know, I'll start with that. We'll create a, um, a one sheet for labs. We'll send it off to the labs and say, these are what we need. These are the ingredients that we're hoping to have in it. These are actives that we want. And here's what we don't want. Now we're really, you know, really strong on our don't want list because we're um, clean beauty like we're really yeah. like you know clean so we're um, you know we give them the what we do want what we don't want and then they will then submit samples back to us and mm-hmm. then we will test these samples and like let's say we've got four labs that have presented samples then we narrow it down and say okay this one feels the most right so let's tweak this and let's you know so we'll start working in that way mm-hmm. it's playing it it's sounds playing. fun that's the fun part yeah yeah you touched on how you launched into Henry Bendel and yeah. they took the line on. That was August 2008. Yeah. October 2008, Oof. stock market crashed. How did that change the way you were running the business? Wow, yeah, it was crazy. We launched, I think it was in August. Yeah. And wow, sales were booming. It was amazing. And literally, like two months later, ghost New York City was a ghost town. Oh, my God. It was empty. Um, here's the thing in a way, because I was only in that one door, it was kind of good because 
I was able to slow down and kind of, I didn't, I didn't do a lot of product developing at that time. Mm -hmm. I was trying to understand how to sell. We were building our own website, building out the website, figuring out how to send email. You know, I know that sounds crazy, but like you have to have a cadence to email newsletters. What is my branding? How am I messaging? All that kind of stuff. I was like really refining then. Mm -hmm. And that gave me a chance to do it. And I've always said, you can't grow too fast. Like you can't just like open. Some people do. Some people do it successfully. And then, you know, boom, they sell their company and lucky for them, they're sitting on an island somewhere and I'm still here (laughs) slogging away. But, but I think that like the slow growth is a, is a really important step along the way of refining your message and you just, you know, refining it all. Mm Mm-hmm. Other than, you know, a stock market crashing, another huge change that you worked through is the move into digital. Now you've touched on how you had to go and sit desk side with a beauty editor and like essentially beg to get your product in the magazine. That's obviously not the case now and you've really embraced digital. Can you talk to me about that change? Did you feel like the change to digital was coming? Well, I did, I did, and I didn't. I, I, it's such a funny when I look back on it. In two thousand and fourteen, I was doing blogger events. Uh-huh. So I would do like right <laughs> with somebody here from my company. Oh, we, <laughs> you know, we would go to different cities and host bloggers. But I wasn't so savvy about YouTube at that time. Mm. And I remember it's so funny. I would remember people saying like, "Oh, I saw Miss um, Glamorazzi." Like yep. she, you know, she talked about your tinted moisturizer and I'm like, oh, that's sweet. Like, I don't God, know. I forgot that that was her name for such a long right? time. Right, Ingrid, yeah. exactly. Miss Glamorazzi. And, but I didn't, I didn't know the power of the YouTuber as much. So I was doing Home Shopping Network in Florida and. Okay. Yeah, I was doing Home Shopping Network in Florida and um, I was there one day they were doing a, they did like a 24 hour of beauty and I happened to meet their in-house uh like expert blogger like they Mm -hmm. would like cut away from like you know one sales moment and then they would cut away to my friend Nur who would then they would talk about trends and you know Nur well what are you seeing right now in the you know blogging world and she had her YouTube channel I met Nur she came up to me in the hallway and she said oh hi I've heard of Jouer Desi Perkins uses your highlighter and I literally looked at her with a blank face like I'd never heard of Desi Perkins I didn't know what she was talking about oh (laughs) god so easy to (laughs) laugh now right but it was 2015 Mm -hmm. and I was not savvy with it but she and I was like, oh, she goes, you should send her more product. Like she bought it on her own. Desi bought the product. So I'm Ooh. like, okay, can you help me with that? Like I didn't know. I ended up hiring Nur yeah. that year to guide me in the social world. Like we ended up having dinner the next time I came out and she was showing me like just brands that were killing it online, digitally, um, influencers that I should be sending to. And Mm. I was like, you need to help me with this. I hired her and she flew out to Los Angeles and basically taught us how to do an influencer mailing. Amazing. Amazing. Um, and, and like she walked the shows, I think it was like an Ipsy Gen Beauty. Ipsy is another subscription box, right? And there was a show called Gen Beauty and she walked the show with me and, um, and then I hosted an event and she would, she like helped me get people to my event. And that, that was really the start of it. And some of, actually some of my really good friends that I still have are from that time yeah. that I met when they only had a hundred thousand subscribers, you know, like Laura Lee, I don't yeah. know if you know Laura Lee, now she's got millions, but I met mm-hmm. her when she had a hundred thousand, you know, and we became friends then. And so it's just, wow. it's, it's so funny. Yeah. 
it's so interesting that you did Home Shopping Network because I've had a few people on here who were in a similar position to you yeah. in that they were launching an entirely different category yeah. and they've done – on it's TVSN in Australia, I think, and they have done the same thing because it's the easiest way to communicate the whole brand yeah. message to your consumer. 100%. It's, it's a different audience though. That's the only issue is that um, in America the home shopping audience – wasn't necessarily my target audience and you have to like I was really all about like no makeup natural skin really beautiful mm. and that doesn't translate well on TV you can't show a really okay. strong before and after and yeah um but I think that I think that a lot of it all kind of came together at the same time like I I ended up kind of hitting the Instagram world in a, in a stronger way by increasing my pigments and making everything a little bit more pop yeah so you know, I think that made a difference, but that's still not the home shopping audience. I don't know how it mm. is in Australia. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't really know what well, the home see, shopping. Probably not the no. audience. No, it's it's yeah, it's just such an interesting thing to me that so many people have taken that yeah that path for whatever Listen, reason. Listen, any way you could talk to a customer yourself, yeah. is always better. I think as well when the founder is someone like you who mm-hmm. is the brand and lives it and breathes it, yeah. rather than a brand where they just kind of yeah roll like in and yeah yeah some big corporation yeah. yeah. I think that comes across. Yeah. Let's talk about YouTubers because you've mentioned Ingrid. Ingrid, sorry. I'm still, th- I'm like Miss Glamorazzi. My God, that's a throwback. <laughs> Jeffree Star, Nikki yeah. Tutorials, Chloe Morello, our oh, yeah. queen of Australia. We love her. Wayne Goss, who's Wayne. my favourite oh, in the mine whole world. too. God, he's just a genius. I need to meet him. I've never met him. Really? No, I mean, obviously neither have I. He's a real, that's when I'm talking get about him down here. real makeup artist. Yeah. He's the real deal. He, I love his tutorials. He teaches Mm. you how to, whatever it is, he's actually teaching techniques that are meaningful. Mm. Yeah. And he's, I mean, I could talk about him for hours, but it's the perfect balance of like, he's teaching you, but he's not talking down to you. Yeah. He's amazing. What does coverage like that do for a brand? Having that many eyes on you. Yeah. It's huge. It's Mm -hmm. absolutely huge. Um, and you know, I think that we're we're lucky at Jouet because we don't pay for these posts. We don't pay for them. Mm. Um, I basically send my product and pray that they love it. You know, that's just and really... And they do. And they do. Well, thank God I'm, you know, touch wood. There's wood <laughs> over there. But, um, but yeah, I just, I think that if you um, put out really good product, you know, that's, that's really important. But I also think that... If I were to start now, how hard would it be to get into their hands? Yeah. I don't even know. I don't know. Yeah. Mm. Lucky you don't have to find <laughs> out. <laughs> Thank yeah. God. But I also think, um, you know, the YouTube audience and even the Instagram audience, yeah. they're savvy enough to know when someone's just getting paid to talk about something. Yeah. So it's a good thing that they just right. genuinely love it. Yeah. Jeffree Star took his love for your brand a step further right. when you collaborated with him on a lip topper shade. Yeah. How did that collaboration come about? Um, he, that came about, he, you know, I, every once in a while I would get a little message from Jeffrey mm-hmm. and I'd be like, oh, goosebumps, he's <laughs> like contacting me. <laughs> um, you know, I'm in awe of him. He's amazing. And you know, what's so interesting is that he is out of every influencer that we've ever worked with and we've done brand trips, you know, with multiple influencer, he is probably the most professional that we've ever worked with. And mm-hmm. I will say Chloe Morello is also up there. It's Australians. She, 
That's what <laughs> that is. She's, she is a gem among mm. gems. Really, absolutely a gem. But um, yeah, so he is the most professional. He's always been nothing but polite and kind and gracious mm. and, you know, wonderful. So anyway, he reached out and set up an office meeting and we met and we clicked and we just thought, let's do this. Like this could be really fun. And we did it. I love that he reached out to you. Yeah, I know. I would never have the nerve. I mean, (laughs) you know. God, that shows a real genuine love for a product. Yeah. What do you think is the key to a successful collaboration? Truthfully, it's the only collaboration that I've ever done. So Mm -hmm. um, I can't speak too much. I mean, I've never wanted to be a brand that continuously collaborates because what is the brand DNA at that point? I think Mm -hmm. there are brands out there that are doing that and more power to them and they're growing and they're huge. And like I said, they're probably retiring on an island somewhere, (laughs) happy as can be, but I I bet they're bored. (laughs) They must be bored. Um, But, you know, and I would love to do more. I really would. I just, I haven't really figured out what that would look like and who that Mm. would be with, you know? You can't force it. I can't force it. And I just... Yeah, I've seen brands do it well and I've seen them not do well and I don't I I honestly don't know. But I do know with Jeffrey it was really um it was the right time. It was fun and playful. We had a good time together mm-hmm. and we didn't take it too seriously and you know, that was that was it. Amazing. Yeah. How did the collaborative process differ from the usual product development process? He was a dream. I can honestly say like we um, we took our formula and then it was basically a color that yeah. he, he wanted to do. Um, presented him with some colors. He chose the color. Um, it was effortless. Like honestly, it was so easy. Then we talked packaging. Um, we came up with some ideas. He said, I want this and can we change it to that? And absolutely. He signed off. It was done. It was um, on, honestly like the, the easiest collaboration. Because I guess because he loves it. So he knew what he wanted yeah. to do. It was easy. Yeah, exactly. We weren't yeah, making him do something he didn't want to do. Mm. He was in. He was into it, and I just think it was really effortless. It's yeah. refreshing to hear the extent to which he was involved because I feel yeah. like there are so not him, but I feel like there would be a lot of people playing in that space who are just sort of slapping their name on the product oh, and yeah. going for sure. I've seen that. Mm. No, he was involved. Yeah, 100%. that's amazing. Yeah. You have touched on the brand DNA and how you want to stay true to that. You have described it as French minimalist heaven music to my ears how do you manage to remain true to that brand dna while still evolving as a company i think that's a really good question because there was a time um, a few years ago when i think you know somebody said to me a couple of years ago if you want to sell to estee lauder you have to put in more sparkle more shine more glitz you have to be loud and i've always found it to be challenging to be la- to be the understated beautiful sophisticated classic feminine brand that I am and be loud it's really a challenge there is an art to restraint i think yes mm. and you know not it's just it's challenging i'm just trying to stay in my lane you know and my lane is really great skincare ingredients the formulas have to be top notch luxury formulas gorgeous packaging that you want to have on your vanity that you feel like proud of pulling out of your bag, just really elevating the brand and keeping it that way. And and it's hard to play in a loud cosmetic world when Mm. you're that. Yeah. But if I keep staying on my path, I think, you know, I'll get there. (laughs) I think you're there already. (laughs) Thank you. Aside from Jouet, you do some really important, inspiring work with UNICEF. Mm. 
how did you first become involved with UNICEF? Um, the Well, I first became really aware of UNICEF. Obviously, I'd, I remembered Audrey Hepburn was involved oh, with UNICEF. So, yeah. And she is my absolute idol. Mm. I love her. I love her whole aesthetic. Absolutely. And so that, you oh, know. I, she would have loved Jouet. Oh she would have been goodness. all over Oh, my it. gosh. Thank you. That's the best compliment. <laughs> Um, so, but interestingly that it was the tsunami that in Southeast Asia that, um, first drew UNICEF to my attention. I was driving in my car. My kids at that time were super young. They were maybe two and three years old and I turned on NPR, which I don't know if you have NPR. We don't. (laughs) It's public radio and it was talk radio and, um, there was a UNICEF person like speaking about what they were doing for the children that had been orphaned I mean Mm -hmm. so many orphaned children in um in in Thailand I think that she was in Thailand it was horrible Mm. and she was talking about what they were doing with the kids and they they have this thing called school in a box where they basically set up under a tree and the kids come gathering around and that school in a box is not just about like learning your ABCs and school it's about community it's a way to you know, give them psychotherapy to administer vaccines to it was it's a way to like embrace them into, you know, a world they don't Mm. have. And the way she was talking about it, I was enamored. And okay, so cut to maybe a year later in America, we had Katrina, which was a disaster. We had a hurricane and it hit Mm. New Orleans and New Orleans was flooded. And the only NGO invited to help was UNICEF. And mm-hmm. UNICEF usually doesn't work in America. It usually works in developing countries. Yeah. But because they are so good at administering supplies and and helping mm. in disasters, they were brought in. And I thought, you know, I want to do a fundraiser for Katrina and for UNICEF. And so I threw a backyard kind of fundraiser. Yeah. And I raised like $5,000. And I, you know, wa- waltzed into the UNICEF offices. I was like, hello, I'd like to donate some money. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, 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 come have a seat. And so <laughs> <laughs> you have big bucks, come sit down. Oh, they sound like Gorilla DeVille. Yes. No, they were wonderful. <laughs> and ever since then, I, I joined the board. Like they just, you know, I love what they do. And since then I've visited, I think, five countries with them. I've been to Bolivia. I've been to Africa twice. I've been to Malaysia. Um, I visited the Sea Gypsies in in Malaysia with my daughter. Wow. They're, They're these incredible indigenous people that belong actually to no, they have no government Mm -hmm. so though they live in Malaysia like on the water they don't have any citizenship and so they have no rights to doctors schools anything and there are hundreds of thousands of them and they they it's terrible but yeah so wow yeah so I get to learn about these amazing people and the work that they're doing that UNICEF is doing and yeah during those travels and meeting those people has that changed or shaped your greater perception of what beauty is absolutely I Mm -hmm. think (laughs) I think that um you know we can't see beauty as something that's just superficial it's Mm -hmm. really it's beauty is as beauty does it is what you do in your life that makes you beautiful and I think that's something that I've tried to impart with my children and the culture at our office is really um, about that, about, you know, kindness towards others mm. and um, and doing good in the world. And we, we do a collection every year for UNICEF. Yes. Um, we do a collection every year for UNICEF. But even last year, we did a really fun collection that the 
the um, proceeds went to a company in Los Angeles called Chrysalis, which gives people who've been either incarcerated or have had just down on their luck and they need to get a job. Mm. It, it, it teaches them how to build a resume and gives them work oh, experience wonderful. and training. And yeah, so we're always just trying to find ways to give back. And um, and yeah, I think that my work with UNICEF has definitely informed that. I think that does come across in the brand, though, the language, the messaging, all of it just feels kind. That probably oh. sounds strange, but it doesn't feel like an intimidating brand. I yeah. know beauty can be intimidating to people, but it yeah. just feels warm and inclusive. Thank you. I definitely think so. I mean, we're also very inclusive in a few other ways. I mean, our color um, shade range yes. is very inclusive. Mm. And I think as an indie brand... We were one of the first that came out with 50 shades of foundation. Amazing. And as an indie brand, trust me, that's not easy. But I God, say if no. we can do it, there's no excuse for any other brand not to do it. Yeah. You know? But so many of them are still dragging oh, their feet. I know. And it's hard. I get it. It's hard. And you're not going to make as much money. But I think that it's an important message. And we're also very inclusive in our pricing. I mean, I think that the the value that you get yes. for Jouer, it really should be twice as much. Like it should mm. be a very high end luxury price, but it's not. And um, you know, I just try to make it accessible and, mm. you know, to everybody and, and yeah, in the wording of our social posts and everything, like we want everybody to feel good, you know, yeah. we don't want to intimidate anybody and it really comes yeah. across. I just think in every situation there's an easy choice and the important decision and right. you clearly do the important choices on travel, certainly in a lighter capacity, Jouet launched on Australian shelves in Mecca at the mm. end of last year. Having spent, I mean, you've spent a whole three days here. You're a, <laughs> practically a local now. What would you say are the differences between the way Australia approaches beauty and business compared to the US? Well, I will say that I am a local because I visited the Penguins and you haven't. Yes. Yet. we Okay, so I have to, for context, we were talking about this before we started recording. I didn't know that they had penguins in St Kilda. I've been hauling my cookies to Phillip Island all this time. <laughs> And I could have just been going down to St Kilda yeah, Beach. I can teach you a few things. Well, you already have <laughs> a wealth of information. Oh um, penguins yeah, aside, though. Penguins aside, and they are beautiful, oh, adorable, fuzzy, lovely creatures. Um, you know, I was telling my team, it's so funny, and then I pulled it up on my, I've got my iPad sitting in front of me. I've been reading, you're going to laugh. I've, seriously, I've been reading. Can you say this as I take a sip of water? <laughs> Don't <laughs> I've been reading Australian Vogue for mm. probably 10 years. There you go. Yeah, and I had no idea I would ever launch in Australia. Like, never. Um, I like Australian Vogue more than American Vogue. Controversial, but I agree. <laughs> no biased from me whatsoever. <laughs> I love Australian Vogue. I don't know what that says about, you know, Australian beauty. I think that um, I, I don't... I'm, I would be just guesstimating by what my mm -hmm. impressions are on Australian beauty. I am no way in any kind of way an authority on Australian beauty. But I do think it's a little bit more healthy and natural of a beauty mm -hmm. than American beauty. I think that American beauty is maybe perhaps more contrived. Okay. And... Um, I love the Australian aesthetic. It's just, it's really clean and healthy and, um, yeah, like it's skin oriented mm. and maybe it's because of your climate. I'm not sure, you know, you don't want to be I mean, encumbered by climate makeup. in Melbourne is 
I mean, it, what is it? It is confusing. I'll be honest. Today a, alone, it's been... <laughs> you've had a real taste for just how confusing it yeah. can be. It wouldn't have truly been Melbourne if you'd had consistent weather for the last three days. It's true. I think I've I've literally had it all here. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You have sat at the helm of Jouet for 16 years now, but your love of beauty extends far beyond that. Over that time, what are the biggest changes you've seen within the beauty industry? Honestly, two things. One is the ability to speak to the customer mm-hmm. right away. You know, like I can I can take a poll on Instagram. Do you want a cream or do you want a powder? And boom, I can have an answer. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And I think that that like immediate feedback is just so great. You really can talk to your customer and understand their needs and wants and desires. And other than that, I think the biggest change has been inclusivity. I mean, boys wearing makeup, um, colors and shades, the skin tones. I just think it's broadened Mm. and that's really exciting. I think there's just um, like a boom in um, in the makeup world that is very exciting. And what changes do you think we can expect to see in the coming years? I'm expecting to see more innovation in the skincare arena. I think that it's, you know, science-based mm-hmm. skin care is going to be really, that's the thing that I'm most excited about and love looking into and finding new formulas. I think we're going to see more of that and also just more inclusivity in general, just more acceptance. You know, when mm. I, th- I think I live in a bubble in Los Angeles. <laughs> I don't know how it is here in Australia, but I, I live in a great bubble. You know, I mm. just think you can be who you are. You can wear what you want. You can express yourself how you want. And I don't think that's quite hit all markets yet. Yeah. So I think that's going to be evolving and, and coming to be. I hope that's the case. I think it's very exciting. Yeah. So 16 years, a few career and brand evolutions, global stockets and more best of beauty awards than I can count. My final question, what is next for Jouer Cosmetics? A nap. A well-earned one. A well-earned nap. Well, we are really excited to launch a brand new product this coming month, which is our lip oil. Mm. It's a high shine lip oil. And don't be fooled by all the lip oils out there. They're actually not made of oil. Oh, there you go. That's Uh the scoop. That is a scoop. (laughs) It's really interesting when you start looking at other brands. I I was looking at a hair brand who shall remain nameless, and they are very trendy, very cool. They've got a hair oil. If you read the ingredients, there's literally no oil in it. It is all silicones. (laughs) It is all silicones and glycerins and whatever. It's like words you can't even pronounce. And I'm like, what? is that our lip oil is 99% plant derived. It's got amazing ingredients. It's high shine. It's clean. It's um, fragrance free. It's just gorgeous. It's an incredible formula. Your lips are going to be glossy and gorgeous and cared for. So yeah. That was Christina Zilber, founder of Jouet Cosmetics, which you can find on Instagram at Jouet Cosmetics. To read my interview with Christina, you can visit the newly relaunched glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.